0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmembership.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Lauren Lando of Lando Performance. Lauren has worked with over 70 NFL All-Pros and over 20 first-round draft selections in the NFL. He's also been a national and international presenter for leading organisations in the performance field. Lauren also serves on the board of directors for the exercise science programme at Metro State University and is also on the board for the Masters Strength and Conditioning Programme at Satanta College here in Ireland. He also serves as a sports performance director for Elite Sports University, an online education website. Lauren has also authored two books, my off-season with the Denver Broncos, building a championship-winning team while nobody's watching, and also ultimate conditioning for martial arts. Lauren is also the director and owner of Lando Performance. On this episode, Lauren and I discussed many topics, including, of course, Lauren's background and his influences, Lauren's take on the importance of coaching, pedagogy, and building trust in the coach-and-athlete relationship, The importance of emotional intelligence as coach. Lauren's top three areas that he believes all coaches need to master: Consistency, patience and choosing your battles. The good and not so good things that Lauren currently sees within the physical preparation profession. Lauren talks about his training system. Lauren's model of teaching multi-directional speed. And some of Lauren's top resources. Guys this was an excellent episode with Lauren. And I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Lauren Lando, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast, my friend. I, I really appreciate you making the time. Um just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, Lauren, which I would imagine will be no one, uh just for the sin on your background.
1: Sure. Um you know I've been in the performance enhancement um side of things for about twenty-two years now. Um, I started, you know, I came out of, of school and really the track that I went on was more of the cardiopulmonary rehab mm. and I went that track, um, for about six months or so. And it was pretty early on in that process with that job that, um, I, I knew I had to get out yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I I enjoyed what I did. I enjoyed the problem solving aspect of it and, and trying to help people. But I think the the really tough thing for me was, was coming across people that uh, didn't want to get better necessarily. You know, their life depended on it, and they didn't want to make the necessary life changes to have a better quality of life. And that really, really bothered me. Um, so from there, I, I, I went uh, a, probably a different route than most performance coaches. I went right into um, almost the private sector or into the athletic club world where I was a a typical personal trainer working with anybody and everybody that came in. Um, And it was there that I I caught the – there was a coach who was doing performance enhancement work. Again, this was about 22 years ago. Mm. And he was a a track coach, and he was a former athlete himself. And he had had the who's who of athletes. And I remember watching him saying, oh, my gosh, I want to do what he's doing. And so I spent time with him and I shadowed him and did what we do in this industry where we volunteer time, we jump in sessions, and that really kind of morphed into me leading a lot of sessions that that he wasn't making or that he was late for. I was starting to take these sessions for him. Mm. I didn't know really what I was doing. I was implementing whatever he was sending to me, but I think from him early on, I learned a very valuable lesson. Um, You know, The consistency that a coach provides is really the um, staple in how you build the trust with the athletes, mm. and I could see him losing that trust with those guys in that process. So, long story short, uh, he was a good track. He had he had a, um, a good understanding of track and field, could talk the talk, mm. um, but it was pretty evident to me after a while that maybe he really wasn't quite sure on his X's and O's so much, and. So I started thinking about, it. I was like, shoot, if, if I can really have a good sense of biomechanics and try to understand as much as I can about human movement, um, and have the consistency in my work ethic and, and the, the personality component, you know, that that's a a, tri- a great triangular approach to really creating a strong healthy business. Yeah. And so I kind of ran with that, and uh, through that, I right after that, I started seeking out you know different mentors, whether it was Lauren Seagrave, Dan Papp. Um, two of the, the movement guys who really jumped out at me uh, that I wanted to learn what they were doing and so spent a, a decent amount of time around those coaches uh, Lauren early on in my career and then Dan as mm. my career evolved um, and just listening to what they were saying and seeing and seeing how i could take what they were looking at from a technical model in movement and saying how can i implement that to what I do which was more um, you know field sport and, and multi-directional sport athlete um for, during that time, I, I became certified as a soft tissue um, uh, uh, specialist as well. And so, you know, really what that did is it just helped really bring to the forefront of my mind of really how much I didn't know. And I, you know, got a great understanding of the anatomy, um, the, a better understanding of the, the physiology, the underlying physiology of the neuromuscular system. Um, but I think too the quality of tissue and feeling good quality tissue and, and getting a sense to have a more critical eye, it really helped start um, create that thought process for me. So that was kind of my background, and then it evolved into you know what we are today as Lando Performance, which is a private private facility where I have 15 coaches that coach under um, uh, the same philosophy, and uh, you know I, I, I'd say. I'd say similar methods, but I think that's hard to say because I think methods evolve within the coach who's implementing them mm-hmm. over time based on the eye and the understanding of how those methods fit.
0: Mm. Well, we, we actually just continue on just from that last point. We were speaking about that, about some of your coaches. and um, I was asking a mutual friend of ours and you, you were kind of saying that seems to be a, a, a thing you facilitate at Lando performances to kind of get coaches to be able to be a little more self-reliant. So. To, like maybe just touch on that and how you feel that that's a huge part of the the coaching pedagogy. And the reason I bring that up is pedagogy seems to be getting more and more attention within coaching nowadays. I was having a discu- right. I was having a discussion with a, another another mutual friend of ours, Liam Hennessy. And by the way, Liam says hello because um, oh, I told I told him last week I was going to speak to him. I'm actually, I'm going to meet him next week. This day next week for a cup of tea. That's what he's a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, Love it. But well, I asked him about, you know, do, does he think coaching pedagogy will play a bigger part of coaching education because, you know, the hard sciences sciences, and what I mean by that is like physiology, biomechanics, uh, nutrition, like they're all like cornerstones of coaching education courses. But the pedagogy, because it's seen as such a soft science, it kind of seems to be yeah. kind of shoved to the side. Whereas, I mean, even, even with the start of your answer, you spoke about how important and I just made a note of it here. How important trust was between the coach and the athlete. And you, you know as well as I do, because you spent time at Altus too, uh, the psychologist Mark Mark um, Strickland, he's, he's the psychologist with the Open Raiders and does work with Altus. And he spoke about that, the, the number one determining factor between success between a coach and a team or a coach, an athlete, or a personal trainer and his, and his client is trust. Um, so yep. may, maybe just the question I want to ask you is, because you're so experienced, 22 years in the field, you have a huge staff there. How important is is it for you to facilitate this this growth process of self reliance in a coach, and therefore also facilitate their their coaching pedagogy?
1: You know, I I think you bring up a really good point. Uh, I remember last time I was in Altus, uh, we were I think we were having a poolside discussion, uh, all of us, and it was brought up how you know coaching pedagogy is like the, the last thing a yes. coach really learns. Sure. Oh, and you know, I, I think that. I think that, that there's twofold. Two I think it's twofold on that answer. I think one, everybody wants to enamor you with science and what mm-hmm. they know and what they can regurgitate from uh, resources and references. And, Guilty. And, yeah, we've we, we all we done it. Yeah. yeah, oh, myself as well. And I think that we find comfort in what we can substantiate. And so when we look at you know, coaching pedagogy, the number one thing, you look at the, the great coaches and they're 20, 30, 40 years in and they're starting to get it. <laughs> and <laughs> I think the problem is, is that not the problem, I guess the beauty of it is, is it's um, it's intuition driven based on experience. So I, I think that I think you can make athletes aware, because when I got back from politics, I sat down with my coaches and I said, what is what is coaching? What's coaching pedagogy? What is the art of it? And what are all the layers that go into it? And it's vast. And I think that a lot of coaches don't know really all the the variables that really come along with the art of coaching. Yeah. Where you talk to a, a, a well-advanced coach, coach who's been doing it for years, and they, they see something and it's, it's second nature to them. Where the other coach may not even be in the same wheelhouse of where that coach is thinking. So it comes down to purely the... The experience and the expertise that leads us to truly coaching pedagogy but I think what I'm trying to do with my coach is at least educate them on the process so they can be aware of you know different landmarks in their growth to say ah there's a moment of coaching or maybe I shouldn't overcoach oh maybe my tone of which I'm coaching um, is is affecting the athlete maybe it's the um, yeah. maybe it's my body language yeah. like so many different things and I think once you understand that it's all those psychosocial variables, that you can really start to get to know the person a little bit more in depth. Um, you know, not to sound cliche, but I think one of the biggest things we pointed out in our coaches here is when you meet with your athlete day one, we do the intakes. We, we do the intakes with them. We find out their medical history, their training history, and background. But very rarely do we sit there and say, "Why?" You know, we, we don't have a general idea why somebody comes into work with us, but I want to know what is your your deep seated why yeah. and i know that sounds cliche right now but i think you know that really opens up the trust conversation or at least uh, allows that conversation not to be so quite sterile as most intakes are
0: yeah you you strike me as someone who has a deep appreciation for understanding human behavior and i suppose my question onto that then would be as your career went on did you find yourself kind of very more towards continuing education resources, more to do with like self-development and understanding human behavior and development, um, and not, not so much getting away from, obviously, physical preparation and, say, again, more of our traditional sort of scope of practice as strength and conditioning coaches or physical preparation coaches, but I suppose the question is, did you become more pr- appreciative of understanding, well, I need to really study more about this human behavior component if I really want to get the maximum benefit from my clients and athletes?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it, it was something that that triggered me earlier. I, I think one thing that I I'll, I'll say is is I've always had a, a deep seating care and concern for the people that I work okay. with, yeah. and if somebody's going to you know again come into my doors and and you know want to write a check for training, um, clearly there's got to be a little bit of inherent trust that they have, mm-hmm. and so I take it as a huge responsibility when mm-hmm. somebody comes in. So I think for me, I've always uh, recognized the the um, the importance of it, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I think it's talking to coaches like yourself. I think it's talking to, to coaches like Brett Bartholomew and Nick Winkleman, guys whose wheelhouse is really in who, – who has been in that, that uh, side of things that maybe reaffirmed our communication skills are so important. Because I'll, I tell my coaches now and even my interns that started last week – you know, as a coach, you're going to evolve who you are. Mm-hmm. Early on as a coach, like I was that typical coach. You know, if, if I could yell louder, if I could have more inflection in my voice and, and tell you to move faster and, and tough-talk you a little bit, I thought that's what coaching was. And um, it, and I had results back then with, with a few kids, but I'd, I'd lose kids too in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think it was I had a shift in my mindset probably about eight years ago where I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a better way to get buy-in uh, without trying to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Because my role in the private sector is really different. I'm not the collegiate coach who's trying to, to to take you from boy to man. Like I'm in the private sector, and I've got to find a way to, to actually have a business sense to me and communicate like a businessman. Mm-hmm. And so I try to do that but at the same time I want to have the empathy um, with my athletes. Because I think the more I under, I learned about motor skill learning and motor skill acquisition is like, these things that we're asking these athletes to do and learn they're not easy yeah and so if i i've got to have more patience in my practice and and there's really three staples that i i really walk away with now Robbie and the three staples I always tell people I learned it from parenting and it's so funny because now I've been saying this for a number of years now and I have people come up to me and saying that is one of the best takeaways i've ever had and oh by the way now I have kids and I totally get what you mean but the three takeaways are I have to be consistent in my message. Okay. okay. First and foremost, I have to be consistent. Athletes are very in tune and can can sniff out a fake. <laughs> and if you're not consistent, if you're not willing to put into the work, put in the work, and if your methods or your philosophy seem to shift with the wind, athletes pick up on that. Yeah. And, and that tells them that you're you're not very well grounded in your in your roots or your philosophy. Yeah. Number two, I need to have patience. I need to have patience in this whole thing that we call development. Uh, I look at everything that we implement from exercise to warm-up to skill. It's all skill-driven, and it takes time. And some of those skills are going to get stickier sooner if we create a, 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 you know, here's how it transfers or here's how it relates to your sport. But, you know, I take things as simply as the warm-up, and they're near and dear to me that they're done correctly or as correct as we can for today. And I think where a lot of athletes just kind of go through the motions and I'm like, no, you have to understand like these are skills and these are skills and these are exercises that exercise that truly transfer over to the working mechanics that we're going to get into for your sport. Mm-hmm. So if you do these like crap, you're just setting the tone to, in my opinion, move like crap or just be unaware. So it's creating that intentional focus early on um, within the warmup. So again, it's about um, being patient, I guess, going back to my original point. Being patient—that all these things that we're trying to learn and teach are motor skills. Lastly, pick my battles. You know, it, it's no longer—I'm no longer the coach where it's my way or the highway—and um, and I, I firmly believe this. There's no relationship that works well like that. Um, for for a, a, a you know maybe for a brief period of time that can work, but it won't have it won't have substance long term. So I believe that you have to have those three things. You have to have consistency, patience, and pick your battles. Mm. And pick your battles. That could be on, you know, hey, you know, that, that's good enough for today. Or you know, maybe there's a movement fault still, and maybe that movement fault not even worth correcting. Mm. You know, if it's if it's dangerous, yes. If it's taking away from the efficiency of what you're trying to do, um, yes. But if it's just someone's movement signature style, you know, in, in this industry, we're always trying to fixate on what's mm. wrong mm. instead of looking at the athlete and saying holy crap, what's going right and well?
0: Yeah. I have to I have to say, what, what you've just summarized there is so similar to my own career path so far as a coach in that being consistent in your message, like, huge. And, and you kind of said there that, uh, you know, they, the, the like the athletes can sense it. I remember James Fitzgerald from OPEX, when I met him when I was in Arizona, he used to use the term, People can smell it. They can smell it off you. Your inconsistency, and he'd say yeah. that about we. I, we spoke with parent too, and he says your kids will smell it too. He says so basically, yeah. you, know, you know this idea that Stephen Covey talks about in his book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about not not being duplicity. You know duplicity. He's like, you know, do you really live what you're saying, or are you are you being hypocrite? So, I mean, yeah. and, and listen again, like I said earlier on about when we spoke about trying to overwhelm people with science, guilty. Like I've been guilty in my consistency you know, and on. It, it kind of takes somebody to come up and say your body language is, is not shown the message you're trying to get across and stuff like that. And so that's that's I mean I, I just wanna I'm trying to make sure that the the, the, the listeners and particularly the younger coaches are really appreciating what you've just laid out there because consistency is so huge. And the next thing patience. So sure. so many people I've I've interviewed or spoken to like yourself, Dan Fath a Stu McMillan, a Michael Boyle a mike robertson a bill hartman all these great minds a Liam hennessy they always say and they mightn't use this phrase but they always talk about delayed gratification in some form or another and that's got to do with mastery basically of your craft and we live in such an instant gratification society now with social media and whatnot and like right. we, we actually have a generation of people who are alive now who've never known the world without laptops or mobile phones i was probably one of the the last generations that came into the world War. I can still remember I used to have to ring my friends on like their house phone you know like, That's are you, right. yeah are you coming out and then like if they weren't there you just had to wait till they got home you hey know, so. we used to go to our friend's
1: house and if they weren't there then we wasted a, a three-mile bike ride I remember
0: I, I remember quick side I remember like talking to my parents and I was like so you know when you used to ring and arrange to meet somewhere and like yeah and I was like what happened if they didn't show up and they'd be like we'd wait and I was like for how long sometimes an hour I was like two hours It was like like, that just wouldn't happen nowadays. You'd be, like, text- on no, a text fight. You're one oh. minute, like, where are you? Yeah, yeah, so... And then the the final thing, and it's I'm so happy you actually brought this up. Pick your battles, because I was literally going to follow up with a question where you were, like, I want my warm-ups to be perfect, or, you know, not perfect. I know what you meant by that, but I want, I want my athletes to be dialed in and realize why they are doing want to do them. But there is days where your athletes just aren't there. And then yep. you, you worded so well. I got to pick my battles. I got to know, right, this guy... Or this, this, this girl. She's just, just, today's just not her day. But I'm still gonna focus on this part and tell her that's yeah. still a great job, and I'm still not gonna, I'm still not gonna like you know be overly critical on this part, and you yeah. know. So I think that's so well, important because we try to be too perfect sometimes, and then like again, you're losing that relationship and trust because it's,
1: it's more here, about you a, as a
0: coach and your ego rather than facilitating them. Like,
1: here's a perfect example. I had a, this happened about two weeks ago. And I had one of my uh, CFL, my Canadian football players. Mm. He was two weeks away from going to training camp. And on a Saturday night, he sends me a text message and says and, – a and, and frantic text message and, and then calling me repeatedly. He had just been released from his team oh, wow. with no, no reason being. So he and I get on the phone and we start talking about a strategy, a game plan. Hey, here's what we need to do. And he was really like – It was the first time he had truly been cut for not doing anything. Like he hadn't even shown up to camp yet. And he says, I don't even know how to process this. So I said, tell you what, here's what I need you to do. Let's get a hold of your agent. Let's talk to Actually call the director of player personnel for that team and find out why they got rid of you. Um, You you need to find out the why and and tell him not to BS you and to to treat you like a man. You know, a lot of times when an athlete gets released, they say, oh, it's a numbers game. Uh, We had to bring in a different position. No. Get to the heart of it. Is there something that I can do to be better? Yeah. Long story short, fast forward to Monday, he comes in and he's just not okay. Like the best place was for him to be here training with me, but he was not in a good place. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just see it in their eyes. And he was going through our warm up, and it was bad. Like he wasn't there. It was just poorly done. And one of my coaches went up to him and said, "Hey, you know, you got to, you know, pay attention. You've got to do this." And I actually went up to my coach and mm-hmm. said, hey, you know, lay off him today. Let me talk to him today. And so I let him do what he needed to do to get through the warm-up. Exactly. After the warm-up, I pulled him aside and said, hey, it's obvious you're not here today. Yeah. It's obvious. I said, the best place is for you to be in this facility training and, and, and working on, you know, getting seen again and being picked back up. I said, but you're not in a good place today. I said, if we get into the drilling session and into our actual workload and you're still not in a good place, I need to pull you out. I said, you need to understand, I need to pull you out for your safety and the safety of those around you if you're not going to be able to re-engage into the group. Beautiful. Yeah. And it was later I kind of told the coach of mine what had happened. Mm. And I said, look, this kid's been beaten down. He had a, one of the worst weekends of his life. And you never know what anybody's dealing with. So, you know, Very use true. your scrutiny and your criticism um, with good judgment and pay
0: attention. Wow, that's that's an, like a perfect story to nail home that pick your bottles and- um, you know another thing that's kind of I've, I've come to appreciate as my career has gone on to is you know I've done a lot of reading around the concept of ego and I I, I, uh, I used to teach at a personal training college and I used to tell the students that when you're new to the field what you sure. need, what, what you need to understand sometimes is that it's 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 your ego that starts to, to be the coach and then you start to uh, instead of you being in a position where what you should be doing is just trying to facilitate the athlete or the client or the individual in front of you. You start to become impatient, you know, patience. You start yep. to become impatient because they're, yep. not, they're not executing the certain exercise that you want to the, to the best possible potential that you think they could do. But again, as you said, it's all neurological. It's all nervous. It's all motor control. It's all learning. And right. some people are just going to process that at different speeds. So what happens is at a subconscious level, that young and experienced coach is saying to themselves, "I'm I'm actually mortified at how bad this client is making me look as a coach." And no it, doubt. It becomes an ego thing. So, like in their head, they they imagine like one of their peers, like me or you, walking in and thinking, "Oh my God, that, that what a bad coach! Look how bad their client's moving." So again, it's it's the coach's ego. So they make it all yep. about them. They're, this client is making me look bad. Again, it's an ego thing. Rather than being like, "This is nothing got to do with me. I'm just here to try and help this person facilitate in any way I can as a human being through the." The means of this this training program and being here in this facility with me so and listen again guilty as hell i've done it before myself you know because we're wanting everything to be perfect no patience as you said not picking our battles everything has to be perfect oh i don't care if you had a row with your wife last night you're you're not executing a split squat the way it should be done in my facility because I have right to, you know so it's just so beautiful that you touched on that because it's kind of been a place for my headspace to be that and for someone of your experience like it's just it's again it's refreshing to, to to hear that and i think it's so important for the younger coaches as well to preach any coach but younger coaches to really appreciate that so i they're just such good answers Lauren. i
1: think the i i you hit that right on the head with uh, the ego and i always say it's like ego and insecurity uh makes a coach yell yeah. and makes, coach, <laughs> makes coach yell and scream more and makes them blame their athlete for how an, an exercise looks yeah and so you hit that on the head and you know we have a lot of athletes or I'm sorry we have a lot of coaches that come in here and shadow and you know we have we have a lot of athletes who have young training age we have some that have moderate training age we have some that have a pretty pretty good extensive training age but if somebody comes into our, our facility it's easy for them to come in take a snapshot for an hour and go and, and, and be the critic right oh I wouldn't have done that exercise like that I wouldn't have done this exactly and we have a saying around here we have a saying around here is uh, you should have seen where they started <laughs> Because it's all about perspective. It's oh, all about perspective.
0: That's another another view for it. Because you know Chidi from from Altus. And Love Chidi. Ch, Ch, I mean Chidi, Chidi would say that to me so many times, is in like, uh, in terms of it's you know context and and uh, and then in in um, like from where that person was, like you know. So what was the word you just use there again? Uh, A perspective. Perspective. Yeah, he would say yes. Yeah. Yeah, like he would always say to me, context and perspective. So, like, if you were to see uh, a certain sprinter now and still be like, oh, like, you know, such such, still overcast, still, you know, still is, still like, is a bit, like, could be a little bit stiffer when, when they're in their upright running mechanics. And, you know, he'd be saying, you want to see where that athlete was two years ago. Like, it's, a, it's right. n- night and day. So, again, different total perspective, completely different context. It's all contextual.
1: Like, and I think. Yeah. It's oh,
0: like, I, I use the, the analogy to that. Like, let's say you see someone and they're overweight and you go like, you know, most people go, God, that person's fat. And it's like that person's actually lost 200 pounds in the last right. two years. So it's perspective again and it's changed there, you know,
1: 100%. And I think that's one thing we run into a lot here is uh, we have interns that come in and depending on, you know, how they, you know, what their confidence level is coming in, um, you know they they can pick up anything and everything that's a movement flaw or, or an issue when I'm coaching a session or when somebody else is. But then you say, all right, the, the keys of the Ferrari are in your hand, and it's their coaching session, and it's amazing to watch like they're deer in the headlights. They don't know what to coach, they don't know what to look at. But when it's when it's not their athlete, they can see everything. So again, it's one of those things when uh, when when you're the coach involved. Um, and, and you're uh, you know some, a coach who's watching, it's a lot easier to sit there and think what you're seeing until that athlete's actually yours and you're like, oh, shoot. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: what, what cue should I start with? Where should I go? Should it be from top, bottom, inside out? Um, what should I do about this? And, and that's the funny thing. I love to see that during the headlight moment with our interns yeah. because I think that really wakes them up and it goes back to that, that coaching pedagogy. is like, uh, you know what, maybe I should just pay attention a little bit more and just watch the movement unravel in front of me yeah, instead yeah. of sitting there and being hypercritical.
0: So like I said before we got online, so many questions, but you're leading to yeah. such good areas. And just one thing that's popped in my mind, and I would like to ask, because again, sure. for someone who's so successful right now with yourself and your facility, and you're in the trenches so long, and we've just been touching on coaching pedagogy, in terms of education of how your coaches or your staff should carry themselves on a day-to-day basis, do you do like education on like body language and tonality of voice and like how important do you think that stuff is? I I think it's huge. You know I I I, I create an autonomy type feeling here.
1: Okay. And I really won't single somebody out until I see something that looks like a, a, a something that's becoming a chronic behavior issue. Um, you know, th- their interaction with their client. Are they fidgeting with their hair or something else and not paying attention to the client in front of them? Are they constantly distracted? You know, I'll jump in and, and uh, connect on some of those points. But we sit down and we talk pretty consistently as a group. Okay. And we're in a pretty small space. We have 15 coaches in 9,000 square feet. So we're in a pretty tight space. So mm. I can see a lot. And hopefully they can see me a lot. And I'm by no means perfect, but I like to think that my attention is really, really high during my sessions. Yeah. So I'm hoping that I'm providing the hey, um, you know, kind of see what I'm doing kind of thing, how I'm talking, how I'm interacting. Um, you know pay attention to my my rest breaks and what I'm doing in those rest breaks are we sitting there talking about you know training are we talking and having fun like or am I off talking to another uh, member in here another athlete in here so pay attention to those things but uh, we do talk about body language a lot um, music is a big one in here that can kind of create a good mood or bad mood so mm-hmm. there's so many other variables that we run into in this facility um, that, that I have to always be touching on I I, I do think I, I, I probably do a pretty decent job of, uh, of. I don't micromanage, but I give those management moments um, yeah. where I say, hey, that was a really good session. Keep it up. I really liked how you did X, Y, Z. Or, um, you know, in, in other cases, hey, I don't know where you were in that session. I hope everything's okay personally, but you need to step up your game. Because one thing I always tell them, I, I tell them the same thing that you did. I said, I want you to pretend like when that door opens in our facility, That, you know, a damn path is walking in or somebody who you regard as a high-level coach is walking in. And how do you want them to remember the session that they saw you coaching? I want them to see that. Or I always tell my coaches, I want one of our competitors to walk in. And and what's their takeaway when they walk in and see you coaching? Do they sit there and go, oh, my gosh, we got to step up our game? Mm. Or they're like, ah, they're just okay. I I want to hold a high, high standard to what we we put out there. And I, I, I believe this. A a coach's evolution is going to be through their entire career, but the one thing I can never, ever, ever slide on is is their work ethic and their attention to detail. Like You may not know the details that you're looking at, but if you have great work ethic, if you have good attention to detail, and if you truly make it athlete-centered, you're going to be successful in this career path regardless of what you know from a method standpoint. So... What, what, I, I may have some coaches who are who are young in their in their training age, essentially, or in their coaching age, but uh, those are the things that they can bring to the table: a good strong work ethic, a good culture, a good uh, you know camaraderie, a good team player. All those different things, you know, that it doesn't take a, a lot of reading and knowledge. It takes a lot of common sense
0: and, and fortitude. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's like again. Who you remind me of just there was Mike Boyle, and um, who was one of my first mentors in the field. I I, I interned at Boyle's in two thousand nine. I, I worked there in two thousand fifteen. And Mike would often use the analogy of the shop window. So he's like, you know, someone walks past the shop window and they they and they look in the window and they go, do they like what they see or do they're like, oh, or they're like, oh, I like what they're doing. In terms, in terms of like you know, someone walked into your gym and go, "Holy shit, this is this is amazing." or they, are they walking in going, "Oh, this is pretty bad," yeah. and walking about out? So, exactly, it's it's just uh, again, like it, it's you get someone of, of again your experience and a coach Boyle and using different sort of stories and words, but coming to a very similar uh, endpoint and that. So it's it's just you know great to hear again, um. Lauren, so I'm an I'm an athlete. Well, I was an athlete, but let's say right, let's say I'm I'm a stud athlete, and I walk into Lando Performance, and I'm like, I hear this is the the place to be in in not only Colorado but in the whole West Coast of America. Uh, what what happens like? So what do you guys do? So like, basically, what is the the system at Lando Performance?
1: Sure, our athletes come in. We do a, a full intake with them. You know, typical medical history questionnaires. Uh, we will take them through an evaluation that is really uh, On table evaluation, uh, more from the soft tissue background that I have, um, and then also taking them through our active warm up. Uh, we we don't do like uh, a traditional like FMS or anything like that. We just kind of watch, you know, their movement patterns and what who they are, you know, coming in day one. What's their what's their bend like? What's their aware? I think I think we always talk about like what's their bend, what's their this and that, but really it's like how well do they know themselves? How well yeah. do they understand how to move this vehicle? So that's what we look at, you know, different skipping progressions, different, you know, walking exercises that have a, a balance component, different uh, isolated exercise or quasi-isolated exercises down in quadruped and, and prone positions and supine positions. And we're just, we're just watching. You know, I tell my coaches, if you walk away and you assess, like, you know, you, you really probably missed, you probably highly underestimated the, the human body and all the layers to it. So... You know, we just, you know, watch and, and you, you ask questions as you watch. You know, you see a, you know, a, a walking exercise, they're doing like a walking knee hug and they're unable to get hip extension. Is it the unaware, are they unaware to get hip extension? Do they have a, a previous uh, injury pathology, something mm-hmm. that, that um, is underlying as a root cause of why they can't get to that position mm-hmm. or they're just not aware? So it, it's, it's a lot of that kind of intake. Um, and we, we do our quantitative. If the athlete comes in and they've got a clean bill of health, We'll take them through their typical, you know, vertical jump, broad jump measures from uh, counter movement to non-counter movement. Uh, we will take them through some speed tests, anywhere from uh, 10 and 20 yards. Uh, we will also do at 20 yards because our facility. If we, if we tried to run 30, we a full 30, we probably run into some trouble <laughs> in the deceleration portion. But then it has components of uh, multi-directional as well. Again, to me, it's not about the time; it's about like what is your What's your comfort level like when you cut right and left? And what's your ability to accelerate out of those cuts? Those are the things I care about and look at because those are things I can really help you with as an athlete. Okay. Um, and then we've taken through like, you know, some really low level uh, metabolic work, uh, like a long shuttle where I'm still assessing uh, really multi-directional movement at the same time. Uh, and then we'll typically end it off with like a, a general upper extremity strength from, you know, max push-up test to you know, single-legged hop, can you stick? So everything that's kind of has the tenants of performance to uh, prevention as well.
0: Nice. And, and w- with your general pop, would you do any quantitative stuff with them? Or Not you, really. Yeah, um, just wondering able, just asking it. It, it. You know, it matters to what they are
1: as general pop. You know, we, we do have a lot of high-level volleyball players that come in here that it could kind of fit under the general pop, and they will go through the testing measures. Okay. Um, but we also will use um, – we have a, a satellite facility as well. Uh, all of our NFL combine, all of our pro fighters go to this other facility, and we do everything from um, DynaVision testing to, um, you know, the uh, force plate testing, uh, bilateral, unilateral. Um, and so we, we partnered with some people that can give us who are better at collecting those, that data than we are. And then we, we share the data, and then we, we make the appropriate choices. A lot of times the data correlates with what we found in our intake, but it's nice to have something with a little bit more um, reliability in their, their measurements than some of the things that we implement at times. So,
0: um, uh, I was, just a funny thing there, when you said a, a traditional FMS, like, I think Gray would love that it's called traditional now. Like you know, Yeah, right. Like, it's, it's, like it's, it's only it's, it's only around 20 years, but now it's, yeah. a few people already calling it the traditional, but I get guess you mean... And you know what?
1: And let me actually bring up a point because I don't think I did it any service. Like I'm not against the FMS at all. Yeah. I have coaches that use the FMS as well in here. I just don't happen to. Yeah. I think it's a it's a great tool. People just need what to it know is. where the
0: tool fits. Tool, to exactly. It's still in the toolbox. So I'm probably like yourself, Jay. the amount of times the conversation comes up, but it's just you kind of like, oh, here we go again.
1: It's funny, like, any any conversation
0: piece that we have in this industry,
1: it's like, you have to choose a side. Yeah. Like, I hit it, I love it. And I'm like, no, like, it, it fits. It fits. Where does it fit? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's spectral. And, you know, the people that want to, you know, get mad at, like, closed agility drills or agility ladders, like, I, like look, where does it fit? Is it is it a CNS primer? Is yeah. it a rehabilitative tool? Is it a, a coordinative aspect? Like, what are you trying to get out of it? it
0: fits and and you you actually touched on something of like this earlier as in when, when someone sees like a little clip of your session yeah. like i'd say you it's probably happened to you sometimes like how many times do we see like this like one minute i see it with, with stu mcmillan under the grass lately like where there was like a 20 minute bio on under the grass mm-hmm. their farm round and they showed like literally 30 seconds worth, worth of training clips and then everyone goes to now oh why is he doing that why is he? it's like You've no context in this whatsoever. You saw yeah. Like a 30-second yeah. clip, you know, or, like, whenever they show, like, the NFL Combine at, at Exos or at Orlando Performance or a Michael oh, yeah. Training Commission and they see, like, this one clip, and it's all, like, why are they doing that? It's just, like...
1: Oh, oh yeah. I got it pretty good. I think uh, one of the TV stations, uh, one of the big affiliates is maybe NFL Network or ESPN. Um, they were doing a pre-draft story, and they were following three athletes, and they they... I wasn't even there. They, they made up the workout for the athlete to do, and the athlete was doing a ladder drill. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, can, I know how much crap I'm going to catch for that. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but Buddy, buddy Morris would be going
1: crazy. Ladder drills don't make you fast. Like,
0: yeah.
1: Hey, hey, and the people who, who, what people ever said that they did make you fast? I, I've never met anybody that said that they did.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but it's getting, I think what,
1: Honestly, I think what happens, I think people actually lose perspective of acceleration ladder drills. And ladder drills. Yeah. I honestly think they, they lump them in as one. Yeah. And they don't understand. like Acceleration ladders were a tool that were to teach placement and, and timing and hip projection and and all that. And, and somehow I think people are bleeding them all into one. I don't know.
0: Yeah. yeah. To be honest, I, I think that, that um, quite yeah. possibly could be true. So, Lauren, we've we, uh, we, we, we spoken about this um, a little bit when we met at Altus last December and just before we got online here. I know you, you are, you're fairly passionate when it comes to movement. Um, yeah. I, I definitely want you to touch on that. and You even touched on movement there a little bit. You even said there that even when you're doing your quantitative testing, it's nearly, you're still nearly looking at it more from a movement perspective rather than the time. And then on your recent podcast with Derek Hansen, I thought you brought up a beautiful thing. and You slightly touched on this earlier about trying to make the athletes more aware of why they're doing what they're doing. And you were, I think, in in that episode, you told Derek that you would sometimes take out a watch and get the athletes to do some type of drill or activity, and then yeah. and it, like something really fast, and then you would say, "Now see how fast that was, or how long that took it." That was like a tenth of a second. We're doing these drills because that will that will get us an extra tenth of a second, which could be the difference between you getting drafted or not drafted, essentially. So I know that you're yeah. a big, you're definitely a big movement guy. And I remember just at Altus, you started touching to multi-directional speed, and like the stuff you were saying was just like. I thought it was really, really like it, it just kind of blew my mind that because uh, for for a long time I've realised I need to understand physics more to really get a total better grasp on like the movement of of movement for human performance, and just the final thing for for I let you take all this away is sure. um, David Joyce, uh, David Joyce down in Australia, he said a very profound thing one time as well. He he said that he'd often ask young coaches what does a yo-yo test. Test and all the coach go oh aerobic capacity and he goes what else and they go ooh and he goes movement yeah because he's like they get yep. fatigued and they have to turn yep. and he's like are you watching the movement and he's like everyone's just like did they get this level on the yo-yo it's like how are they moving and I know you're yep. definitely a person that appreciates movement at all times when they're fresh for for multi-directional when they're fatiguing and their more metabolic um, activities can maybe just touch into like how your your sort of movement philosophy when it comes to like multi directional all movement basically has sort of dwelled from your early years as coach into where you are now and how you look at movement now pretty much for sure so
1: um you, you know going back to what i spoke about earlier how you know to me when i was seeking out mentors i was seeking out mentors that that really um were exceptional at what they do yeah and not necessarily directly correlate to what i do So, for example, I'll run down the list. So, for me, it was from a movement standpoint, it was Lauren Seagrave and Dan Path. From a um, Greg Roscoff, Tom Purvis, Mm. uh, two guys from more of a muscle activation, RTS standpoint of of understanding physics and force and and, uh, muscle contribution and uh, the neuromuscular, you know, the neuromuscular control of the body. Um, and then from a pro- planning and programming standpoint, I was always looking at like a Steven Plisk. And so what I want to do is look at all those guys and say, what can I take away from them? And so when I look going to movement specifically, I look to Dan and Lauren. And, you know, when you hear great track coaches talk, they always talk about these efficient patterns, and these certain positions that an athlete has to get it to. And it, it comes down to ultimately efficiency, which I know at one point you were going to ask me what my underlying philosophy is. And it comes down to efficiency. And that efficiency can be, you know, running straight ahead locomotion, but really the efficiency of, of how well I decelerate and change direction. So Stephen Plisk, and this is going to be a long-winded uh, response, so no, I
0: apologize. Make, make it as long as you want, my friend.
1: Stephen Plisk used to always say, um, when, when he and I would travel mm-hmm. and do presentations together. It was like a dog and pony show. Um, and he and I would present, and I'd always hear him talk about planning and periodization. And he'd talk about to be a better specialist, you need to be a better generalist. Mm-hmm. And he had said it so many times. It was one of those things, every time I sat, I heard it, it sounded so damn profound to me. But I really didn't understand what he was getting at. And it wasn't until I heard it probably the 20th time where I was like, oh, shoot. So in, in our field, in our industry, you know, if I get really good at, at – if I understand my anatomy, if I really understand my physics, if I really understand my biomechanics, if I really understand my biochemistry, if I really understand uh, my physiology, if I really understand – my planning and programming. If I understand those subject matters so well, I can create a specific niche program for any athlete. If I if I understand the KPIs of their sport and and really the things that make somebody successful in their sport. So I took Stephen Plisk's thought process um, to be a better specialist. Uh, I need to be a better generalist. And I was like, well, shoot. How can that? How does that really unfold to multi-directional movement? Because at the time. You know, I think people were doing, you know, footwork drills and they were doing either open or closed drills. But I was like, really, what are the, the main takeaway general subject matters that, that, that make up multidirectional movement? Mm-hmm. And when we look at like just gross motor movement, it's clearly to me, it's this. It's like, uh, you know, linear, linear uh, motion, which we, we can argue, you know, linear can be backpedal. It can be acceleration. It can be transitional mechanics. It can be your maximum velocity mechanics. And then if I look at my planal movements, right? I look at my planal movements, they're a bridge. And they're a bridge to two bouts of acceleration, essentially. So typically in any play, there's going to be a bout of acceleration, some sort of planal movement, and then back to acceleration. So a planal movement to me, Robbie, is like a shuffle. It could be like a a, a defensive slide in basketball. It can be a quick speed shuffle in uh, American football or soccer. Um, it, it, whatever, Whatever you want to call the drill it's something that happens more dominantly in the frontal plane and then we have transitional mechanics that happen in the transverse plane so if i can take my 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 planes of motion and if i can take what my abilities are to move in those planes of motion and if i can find a way to blend them seamlessly i make a more efficient mover just as long as i on all those skills i work on the art of deceleration within them So my four four tenets of multidirectional movement are this. I need to have a great understanding of uh, linear locomotion. I need to have a great understanding and awareness of, of my frontal plane movement. Then I need to understand how my transitional movements or my transverse plane movements blend. So I said the frontal plane is a bridge between two bouts of acceleration. Well, the transverse plane is the interlink between those. Because it's a rotational component around the vertical axis of the spine that really is making that happen. We can look at what's happening around the hip, but what we're trying to do is reorient the body to another direction. So if I can understand deceleration of all those components and drill them over and over in a closed environment, I think what I do is I make a better mover. I think I make a a, a more aware mover because the way I look at it, Robbie, is a lot of people talk about like, dynamical systems and you've just got to let the athlete go and explore the environment and let them react to the constraints of the environment. I'm like, but shit, if they haven't learned how to move, what does it matter? You know, we we can all manage to get from point A to point C either efficiently or inefficiently, but if we never learn the tenets of what was right, how do we know we're getting to the right positions to be quicker, to be faster, to be more explosive, to be more sudden? Um, and so that that's where I take a lot of this too. It, it's like handing a violin to uh, to me right now. If you handed me a violin and I don't understand anything about music, I don't understand anything about the instrument. You you can I'll get better at it, but there's going to be a massive ceiling based on to what I know is right.
0: So would you be of the mindset of this kind of isolate to integrate then?
1: One hundred percent, like part, uh, whole part whole type of modeling, one hundred percent. But the biggest difference that I do, Robbie, is I never tell my athletes when they should do what.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
1: I will oh. say this: when they come out of a, a break and they've got to reaccelerate, the number one thing I'm trying to get them back into is acceleration locomotion. Exactly. But most athletes always default in a change of direction back into more of a cyclical, um, a cyclical range. And it's usually the back leg that's their their main locomotor. It's not the lead leg where the weight's mostly going to be at. Mm. So that's when you see athletes slip and fall, and you'll see them, you know, take a misstep. You'll see them lose balance when they change direction because they're they're using the wrong choice of method. And so what I try to do is get them to understand everything that we work on from an acceleration standpoint now blends into our multidirectional day. Here's mm-hmm. where. Now, the other thing that really changes things, Robbie, is where's my base of support relative to my center of mass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where's my base of support and where's my weight biased? Because if my weight gets heavy on the outside leg and I've got to change direction, then I've got to reposition my inside leg. However, if I'm balanced on the inside leg, then it's a quick crossover with my outside leg. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying, it's hard to visualize on my words right now. But what I'm saying is I give options to my athletes based on, on two, three criteria. The three criteria is where's my base of support? relative to my center of mass mm-hmm. so i guess that's that's really uh, two and one is where's my weight distribution and then lastly where am i going next those when you when you and that's the unknown in sport so we're always solving for an unknown when we look at multidirectional movement but if i can put my athletes in better position to to make more seamless transitions my unknown's going to be easy
0: um,
1: my, my my opportunity to stay in a better position will be better
0: if I've held true to my tenants of, of
1: basic support relative to my center of mass,
0: mm-hmm. and, and would would you then, in the in sort of a more uh, foresight perspective, then would you always try and progress it then to more open chain random? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. So we
1: do a lot of high reactive work in here, um, and it's not like we wait for perfection of these skills and qualities because I do feel that you have to go out there and you've got to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, But Beautiful. but the way I, I've always looked at it, Robbie, is my job is to make a better general mover, mm. okay? Mm. A better general mover for their sport. And then my job is to hand you off to your skills coach and say, man, here, here, yeah, hopefully I gift wrapped a better athlete for you then to teach the skills to them.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people kind of look at that and go, well, you know, I think you have two camps on this one as well. It's like, you know, you, you close everything and there's how you need to do this cut and, oh, my God, you're out of position. We're, we're always going to be out of position in sport. The goal is how do I get back to a good position? Yeah. And if you understand these these tenets of where my where my, um, base of sport is relative to the center of mass and where am I going next, shit, it becomes pretty damn easy.
2: Yeah. yeah. And,
1: and my, my goal is to really simplify this. Instead of having, you know, a million and one agility drills, man, we group like, you know, really probably five to six multi multi-directional drills. We group the hell out of them. And I've got some athletes who are more um, – uh, um, you know, more an acceleration-based, facing forward type athlete versus somebody who's more defensive, and more you know backpedal crossover movement um, priority. But at the end of the day, biomechanics, mm. biomechanics, yeah. And, and efficient movement is that. And so I look for like rhythmic temporal patterns. I look for consistencies and trends when we change direction. How well do we load and get into position? Where is my weight distribution? Robbie, you'd be surprised how many guys will go into a closed drill. And say the 5105 5 which we use here a lot in the U.S. as a testing um, – as a test. The athletes will do a 5 5 and they go in and cut, and they accelerate. They actually accelerate off the incorrect leg. They accelerate off the outside leg. And that's when you saw see a lot of slip patterns, a lot of um, um, inability to hold hold their footing because they're actually accelerating off of the incorrect leg based on where the weight is. Mm-hmm. So it's simple things that we take as – uh, common sense or intuitive feel that the athlete will have um, going into a cut or a change of direction, but a lot of times it, it goes back to what my uh, original intake is. It's like how well do they know their person? And once you start getting them to move and change you'll see those patterns. You'll see, you'll see real narrow foot spacing on their deceleration. You'll see too wide. You'll see an imbalance of weight shift where they don't understand how to decelerate and control uh, trunk range of motion going over that lateral foot. So to me, it's like, it's a game of, of keeping the feet always outside the hips.
0: Yeah. And just to touch on that too, like, uh, I think you did such a great job of, of kind of not being at one end of the spectrum there. You were kind of saying, this, it's not all like planned and closed chain and this, and it's not all just, just let them play. And it's all dynamic systems right. and chaos. Like, again, right. I, I just wrote down the word there spectrum, but uh, yeah. so something that, that Dan touched on actually at, the I think it was was it the which one was it I'm trying to think was it the January I'm not sure it was the February uh, yeah it was it was the February I think um, um, ACP but very Hmm. similar to yourself in that someone had asked a question on multi-directional speed and he's like it's the same physics that you have for acceleration in terms of when I I go to decelerate it's the opposite angles and all feeding back into the cut it's the same like descent slope with just an opposition so he's, and then yep. like when he said that everyone in the room was like how come we never were taught this why Why? What does yep. it make so much sense so you yeah. were kind of similar when you were talking about when you when we were, we kind of slightly touched on multi-dark speed and you were like it's it's physics you know just all this and if you know that you can teach anything and the other thing you touched on too is that you just kind of nail like these three four five consistent patterns and it's the same thing i saw at exos it's the same thing i saw at boils it's like there's these like three or four very fundamental patterns that you need to nail down that will that will bleed into almost any sort of um, multi-directional uh, drill that 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 a, that Natalie's going to have to 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 perform in in a given sport. It'll be like a foundational movement tenant, if you like, that will support any other sort of movements um, that they're going to have to execute. Well,
1: uh, and here's the other part that we don't talk about a whole lot is is I so I have like very high emphasis of deceleration in certain parts of my workouts mm. and drills like every time we work on these specific positions like we're getting that that eccentric strength in those positions yeah. as well you know everybody talks about you know you know implementing a, you know got to implement a block of triphasic um, training to help make your athletes more robust for their on the field performance and i'm like yeah that's great but if you're not really paying attention to their ability to decelerate under higher velocities at those joint angles i mean you have to always dial everything back down to the set principle yeah like, if I haven't been working on it, yeah. I'm sure I'm not going to get better at it.
0: Absolutely. And as I was saying to you, uh, I don't know if you said this offline or online, but when you come to Ireland and Belfast in June 7th, you're going to meet Barry Solon. And Barry, I'm not, you'll love Barry. Barry is like a deceleration nutball. Uh, love it. I, I, think, I think he, he, he like, and I'm actually going to have to ask Barry this. I think... Out of all the years Barry has been coaching, I do not think, and he, he'll have to reaffirm this, but to my mind, I don't think he's had any non-contact ACL. That's amazing. And he's coaching 10, 12 years, I think. That's like, amazing. I, I'm almost certain he's had no non-contact ACL. Because, and like, I'd be very similar, too. Uh, like I always use the example of, do you ever know when you're doing like some type of jumping or hopping, and let's say like it's, it's a phase where you might be sticking each landing, but then when you progress to the phase where it's a bit of elasticity in it, and your athletes forget like to stick the last one, then all of a sudden you know they're, yeah. they're going through. And like I'm always like, "Oi, stick your last landing, even though we're doing continuous, because I want to yep. get that deceleration in." But Barry does. Barry was the person who's like, "Warm up, we decelerate every day." So every every day yeah. with my athletes, we're doing landing drills. I always love doing like. Uh, like say, uh, set base drills into like you know some uh jump with a twist and landing on one leg. I love doing that, or like a, a one eighty jump and land on one leg. So there's a bit of that yeah. trans 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 uh transverse component, but yeah, deceleration is huge. And as you said, if you're not exposing the tissue to those velocities, you know, yeah. said principle it, and all that. So,
1: it, and honestly, it's the the ability of the foot to manage and, and control those positions. Yeah. you know, that's the big one when we look at when we look like those rotary jumps that you were just talking about, and if you're doing them single leg like the second you go to a single leg stance, you're going to be biased either pronation or supination. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you've got to hold more neutral positioning. And the second you add a rotational component to it, now you're really working, uh, really making the body work around a, a direction it doesn't want to decelerate mm. in, especially the knee joint. The, the knee joint, you know, being primarily a hinge guy, it's got a little bit of, of, of rotational um, range. And if that foot isn't strong and stable, if you don't catch an, a decent a little bit of a bend and, and keep that trunk tight, like the amount of rotational forces on a single leg jump like that are massive huge and so the athletes aren't paying attention to those uh, those those catches on those drills and it, it can be a bad deal
0: uh, that's that's you that's after making me aware now of 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 being to pay more attention to that Now so that's great and you actually reminded me some you gave a great presentation on rotational core power at Altus I actually need to watch it back as a Montreal 60 But, a really good thing you, you brought to my awareness in that talk was this need to have the ability to get into supernation, pronation yep. for rotational power. And obviously then that's going to carry into multi-directional speed. So maybe yep. just touch on like how you came to that appreciation or who brought that to your awareness. And, and do, you yeah. ass- do you assess that ability in your clients when they come in or in your athletes in, in terms of their foot awareness? and It's funny, I just uh, did uh, functional range conditioning with Dr. Uh, Dr. Andre Spinoff spina and like that really also kind of brought to my awareness and attention that like well I did like I, I need to know more about getting the most amount of awareness and proprioception around my joints because it was it was profound actually some of the drills he had us do and the way that himself and the guy his, his assistant Dana worded it was like you basically have like real estate in your body that you don't even know you own because you're, you're, yeah. you're in such a pattern of movement every day and it's like He's like, so we do some, like, neck drills, Lauren, and, and I'd be like, holy shit, I never knew my neck, like, had this area of range of motion. I've never been here before. It just made me appreciate that there's parts of my body that I'm actually basically deaf to from a proprioceptive standpoint. So, yeah. when, you, when you when you just brought up the feet there, it me of that in your talk about, because remember you got to stand up and you were like, okay, don't move your feet and rotate. And you were like, holy shit, that feels so restricted. And you were like, now let one foot pronate, supinate. And you were like, it just really brought to my awareness how important that ability is for rotational power and multidirectional. So, I mean, maybe you just want to touch on the importance of your foot. Sure. I think, uh, you know, really the the kind of my
1: awareness of the foot came through a, a gentleman named Greg Roskopf. He mm. was the gentleman that, that had taught uh, muscle activation techniques. And I went through that 18 years ago. And I I really was aware of like, as dumb as it sounds, I think to some degree before that, I knew the foot was clearly important, but I didn't understand how intrinsically um, complicated it was. And I think sometimes when we see something that's a complex kind of system like that, we just, ah, it does its job, ah, it's good. And so we give it the attention that it deserves. And so the more I learned about really what happens um, between pronation and supination and gait at different speeds, and really the, the trade-off that has to happen between rear foot, mid foot, and forefoot mechanics, um, it really showed me right there how important it was to have mobility and stability um, in all ranges of the foot, and also in the talocrural joint. I think a lot of people, we talk about dorsiflexion, but how important it is to make sure that you've got a good talcruel range of motion. So Greg was probably one of the first people that really put that into my attention. And, and I think right away, um, there was a point in time in my career where I had ruptured my plantar fascia and I was paying attention to how they were rehabbing me, especially early on the non-passive the stuff, like put me in a boot, put me in maximal dorsiflexion and things like that. I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, they're trying to put me in the most elongated position of my Achilles and my posterior lower leg as my foot's remodeling. That's brilliant. And I really started thinking about that concept of, of really um, how that foot, how many, you know, how many receptors there are in the foot, yeah. and how if you have a weak link in that chain, like it's going to show itself all the way up. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a weak link in that foundation, it's going to show itself all the way up the chain. So we put a, a tremendous amount of uh, barefoot work into here, but the way I assess yeah. it is truly in the warm-up. Mm-hmm. I'll pay attention to a guy. If a guy's got a, a shoe that's giving me a hard read, if it's like a high uh, angle of inclination from the heel, if there's a lot of midfoot support, I'll ask them to take off the shoes and I'll actually watch watch them go through the walking series exercises barefoot. And I want to see how well they manage. To me, uh, you know, stability of the foot comes down to managing the amount of e- how well we eccentrically control pronation and how well we balance going into supination. Yeah. So effectively, how well do I keep the teeter-totter balanced? And so that's what I pay attention to, and we have a lot of participation from the, the muscles of the foot um, and then muscles that ride up the chain from, you know, we can, we can go all the way up the chain if we wanted, but really if we're looking at, like, how the gastrocnemius, the soleus, the posterior tip, uh, the flexor digitorum, flexor hallucis, the peroneus longus, and all those muscles kind of create this, I don't want to say casting, but they create, like, a, a sling support system of the foot. So you've got the intrinsic modeling for stability, but we inherently don't use it or we allow our shoe wear to take us out of the right positions. So putting them barefoot in all the tape jobs and all the bracing we do, but you take them out of that and you actually just get to see how that foot moves and, and controls on the flat ground. I don't put them on any hypermobile devices at all. The way I look at that, and as we have 56, we, we have, uh, you know, we have 20, 26, 28 bones in the foot. We have 56, 56 joint articulations, uh, or, or joints. I mean, you've got a, a huge potential to have a lot of instability in the rear, mid, and forefoot. Mm-hmm. So to me, putting people on hypermobile devices is, is too much. And then you, you, you create improper positioning of recruitment based on how you change the axis. So if you put somebody on a hypermobile disc and now their calc- calcaneus sits lower than their midfoot, now you're changing the actual recruitment profile of yeah. what should be happening. And really at the end goal with everything in the training process is about reestablishing homeostasis. And if I've got somebody on such a hypermobile device that they can't restore homeostasis, then I'm defeating my purpose. I might be you know, fatiguing the crap out of my flexors and my extensors and, and all these other tissues, but am I actually getting a true skill of reestablishing
0: position and balance? Yeah. So, uh, I, I know that if, if you have to go, you, 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 you've got to take off because I think I'm I, <laughs> yeah, so already booked in for an hour. but. I've got so much more, so we'll just get you back on for a part two. You want,
1: let's do a part two.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because, again, okay. as I, I'd love to talk more about RTS and definitely energy systems. I really want to get your, your thoughts more on that and also like your biggest lessons, advice, resources, all that type of stuff. But I suppose just just wrapping up, Lorne, where could people find out more about you and Lando Performance? Sure. Just
1: go to www.lando.com. Uh, LandoPerformance.com cool. is probably the easiest site, uh, easiest way to get to our website and, and check it out. Uh, also, um, e- EliteSportUniversity.com is another resource. Really um, good.
0: I, I actually couldn't get over how cheap that was. I was, like, okay. I was like, I was trying to find out for ages, how much is this to sign up for? Is like, is it like fifty yeah. a month? Is it like a thousand dollars a year? And it's like, it's like five bucks a month or something
1: or like or yeah,
0: or whatever, yeah. ten yeah. bucks a month or whatever was. There. And that
1: was really our goal was to get practitioners involved and, and, and really we've got so many good people on there. We have Dan, we have Brett Bartholomew, Nick Winkleman, we have Dr. Brian Mann, we oh, have Jay Dawes. We, we have just a spectrum of great practitioners who are talking about a lot of different things. Yeah. It, it's a great resource. So if people want to check that, they're more than welcome okay. to. Uh...
0: Lauren, t- thanks uh, thanks so much. I know you're in a rush there. So uh, I'll uh, when this gets uh, linked out, I'll, I'll email it to you. And uh, thanks, thanks so much for today. I appreciate it, Robbie.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely. You take care, okay?
1: All right, my man.
0: See you. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah.
0: Okay, guys, what a great episode with Coach Lauren Lando. I only had an hour with him there. He had to rush off. He's such a busy dude. So thanks again for all your support by listening to the podcast. If you can, share it on social media. Leave a review on iTunes. But for now, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong.